Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. I am excited today. It's yeah, de rigueur, isn't it, for uh, podcast interviews to begin with, how excited the podcaster is to speak with uh, the person they have. Uh, there's a special excitement, I guess, for each person uh, that I've been able to dialogue with, and today is no exception. I am particularly excited for, because I think if you listen carefully to what we go through today, you may conclude that there should be a, a, a special Nobel Prize issued for the kind of scientific work that we're going to be discussing. Our, the Nobel Prize, famously this year in physics, went to a group of scientists who did very important work on verifying that our universe is not locally real, which is a sort of phenomenal suggestion. It it's, it's, remains mind-blowing if you, if you look at it with a fresh mind, although it's, it, it maybe has gotten stale for some of us. It's still a startling thing, quantum mechanics. Um, what that means, though, what does it mean? What, what do those experimental results mean as, as we try to interpret them and understand the reality that we're in? Well, it could mean, for instance, that the universe is non-locally real. It could mean all sorts of interesting things. But the scientist we're going to be talking with today has done quantum experiments that if you consider them carefully, the, 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 the care and the rigor and the interesting questions that were asked, I think you'll wonder whether or not he should have been included in that group. And I don't mean to be grandiose uh, or flattering, uh, but just think through it with us. My guest today is Dean Radin. He is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, not far from where I'm at, in the Maxa Rejam in the Santa Cruz Mountains. They're in Petaluma. He's Associated Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies and Chairman of the biotech company Cognigenet Cognigenics. Pardon me. He earned an MS in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and in 2022 was awarded an honorary Doctor of Science from Swami Vivekananda University in Bangalore, India, an institution of higher learning accredited by the Indian government and specializing in yoga practice and research. Before joining IONS in 2001, Raiden worked at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He has given over 670 talks and interviews worldwide, and he is the author or co-author of some 300 scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, and nine books, four of which have been translated into 15 foreign languages. And those are The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal and Real Magic, which is a delightful title. So Dean Radin is a very serious scientist. He's been published in peer-reviewed journals for the kinds of stuff that you might not want to believe in, even if it really exists. So let's see. Dean Radin, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, my friend. 
Thank you. Uh, whenever I do a podcast, uh, I'm, of course, listening to the introduction. Uh, and you have the kind of voice uh, that I think I would like to have. I'm just talking, I'm talk- I don't know what you're going to say yet, other than the intro, but just in terms of the timbre, the, uh, the, uh, the sound of your voice is the kind of thing I like to listen to. Whereas when I listen to recordings that, of my own voice, not so good. Well, you know, if it's any consolation, uh, a lot of people don't think they sound good when they listen. Billie Holiday didn't think she sounded very good when she listened to herself. And I often think when I listen to, I don't listen to my podcast, but if I occasionally catch a, a blip or something or, or somebody's made a video, I think, why do people like my voice? <laughs> so I thank you. It's good. Yeah, it's relaxing. It has good resonance. Yeah, it's very nice. Wonderful. Well, I am del- really genuinely delighted to to speak with you because I've known about your work for quite some time. I know when I was in graduate school, so I was able to read your original research. I haven't read too much of your popular uh, translations, uh, in, you know, which are valuable. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I started Real Magic, looking forward to reading that, and I encourage people. This is his latest book. It looks really cool. I wanted to to talk though, especially for two reasons. One, I contacted you because you you did a new analysis on the quantum data that we're going to discuss today, and that sort of sparked. Oh, I really want to talk to him. And secondly, because of that Nobel Prize, that it's related to to, to these quantum phenomena. Could could we begin just at the beginning? Because I have a, I have a pretty varied audi- audience, a lot of artists, a lot of people who would not know the this basic double slit experiment. That as you as you quote Feynman says, this is this is the central mystery. You understand this, you understand why quantum mechanics is is so wild. Could we start there with just a simple description of that classic experiment? Yeah, the double slit experiment. It was actually voted some years ago as the most beautiful experiment in physics because it's very simple, and yet it reveals something very strange about the nature of reality. So in classical physics, roughly meaning Newtonian physics, but I like to think of it more as a refinement, a mathematical refinement of the everyday world. That's classical physics. In classical physics, there's an assumption that if you observe an object, a physical system of some type, that the observation does not interact with that physical system. That's how most of science works. This is not the case, of course, when you're dealing with psychology. If you're staring at somebody and they know it, it will interact with them. But from a physics perspective, it's assumed you can measure something and it won't make any difference. So one of the surprises in quantum mechanics is that if you observe a system at the quantum scale, its behavior changes. And one of the easiest ways of demonstrating that is through this double slit optical system where, which consists of usually a laser, but you can have any light source, where photons are going in a direction and you send them through two tiny little slits. The slits are in the order of microns, so it's difficult to see the slit with your eye, but you can kind of see a little bit of light coming through it. Usually it would look like one slit, just simply because the eye can't resolve the two slits. But nevertheless, the photons are going to go through either one or the other slit, presumably, if we think of a photon as as a little packet of energy. And then on the other side of that, you have a camera, or in the old days, you'd have a screen, and you would see the pattern of light that would be produced. So it's called an interference pattern because it looks uh, like alternating bands of light and dark. And these bands are a little bit brighter in the center, and then they get dimmer as they go away. But nevertheless, 
ripply pattern similar to what you would get if light was behaving like a wave. So the mystery then is that if you know what's called which path information, which is which of the two slits that the photon goes through, then the wave-like structure of light goes away. And it starts acting as though each particle of light is, in fact, a particle. It's no longer wave-like. And so this gives rise to this this puzzle of light having both wave and particle-like characteristics depending on how you look at it. And more importantly, depending on what you know about it. So there's something peculiar about observation, measurement, knowledge that is wrapped into this experiment as a way of demonstrating that there's something strange about the, the nature of measurement in quantum mechanics. And that's one of, the, one of the reasons why it's very, very different than classical mechanics. Right. So there are two, just for to give people a, a sharper uh, idea of this, I just want to l- lay this out in terms of how we think we know the world. Because we basically have an assumption that the world is just out there, and science or any other process of knowledge just comes to be figuring out how things are out there. And the discovery here, and you could say cybernetics uh, echoes this, uh, complexity echoes this in, in certain ways, but the discovery here is one that is an ancient philosophical discovery. That is that what we know depends on the process by which we came to know it. What we know depends on how we come to know it. If we come to know the electron in one way, it it looks a certain way. If we come to know it in another way, it looks different. And the other sharpening point there for everybody listening is we're talking about two very distinct ontological entities is the fancy $10 word. What it means is that a particle is is localized in space. We consider it to be kind of solid. A wave is not. It just is a very different entity. And it would be like as if you were, instead of shooting photons or electrons through the screen, if you imagine tennis balls being fired from one of those uh, machines, if you go to practice by yourself uh, receiving a serve, and those machines are or in a batting cage, you imagine the baseballs being fired through these slits. And if suddenly, even though you were firing baseballs one at a time, you, you realized that they started to behave as if it was a big pool of water that it was all sitting in and that waves were going through the slits. And that is a, just a very uh, jostling sort of uh, distinction. Okay, so depending on how we know and whether, as you, as, uh, as you were pointing out, whether we actually look and see, well, what is it doing? And if we check, then it's, it stops being <laughs> it, stops, it stops being what it was and, and changes because we check. And so historically, uh, and, and what the Nobel Prize is for, people have run this experiment and really relied on the machinery and a person let's say through the through the a mediation maybe of a measuring device but a person going and and checking to see what happened in some way right well actually the nobel prize was about entanglement yes and and this is not explicitly about entanglement there there there's two true. elements That's there's true. two elements of quantum mechanics which are considered strange yeah. because they don't match our everyday experience very much except that they actually do uh, one of them is this notion of observation or measurement. So somehow what we know changes the nature of the physical world. The other one, though, is non-locality. And, and that's the notion that the mathematics of quantum mechanics says that uh, if you have two things which seem to be separate and they interact, when they go on their merry way, they're no longer independent. Yes. 
So we're talking about superpositions, which is a mathematical construct, but it turns out, and and Clauser and others who got the Nobel Prize were able to demonstrate, based on a prediction of John Bell, the physicist, that in fact the mathematics are, are correct and describe a connection between physical particles, physical objects, that persist regardless of the distance in space or time. And of course, if you if you expand that out, then at some point, almost everything interacts with everything else, in which case we live in, as mystics have been trying to tell us forever, something like a holistic reality, a fully interconnected reality that spans or transcends space and time. Right, right. Yeah, and that holism, of course, is 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 part of what Bohm tried to emphasize. And even though that's the sort of weird irony is that Bell started out thinking that he was going to find a way to show that Bohm was making sense, but then we kind of abandoned Bohm's view. That's a, okay, so that's a little bit more of an academic point. But but the but part of what is happening is in those experiments and the any other kind, say the double slit experiment, it's still that we're doing like a uh, let's say a a, a, a physical uh, check compared to the experiment that you're going to describe as, as, as part of what I wanted to get at, right? We're, we're checking in a way that still makes sense to us. It still feels reasonable because we're actually making some kind of uh, physical measurement. Right. 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 And so the, the experiment that I did, and the, the physicists since the beginning of quantum mechanics, which is now a century ago, uh, were quite troubled by the mathematical predictions and at even the beginning of experimental confirmations way back when, 100 years ago. Uh, the idea that uh, that quantum mechanics is really different than classical mechanics was troubling. And, and in fact, Einstein took years, decades, before he came around to the idea that maybe that was uh, correct and maybe never believed it, ultimately. Mm. Uh so the, the, the idea was uh, something about measurement is quite peculiar. And the way that von Neumann put it, and many others have said something similar, but von Neumann made it probably the clearest, uh, but even John Bell was thinking about this, that if, you, if you're trying to understand what the nature of measurement is, I'm going to have measurement and observation sort of synonymous. They're not exactly the same, but close enough. And let's say that you, you want to see a butterfly, that you're talking about. The, what is the nature of being able to do that? Well, photons have to bounce off the butterfly in order for you to be able to see anything in a sort of electromagnetic something. So let's just call it a particle of light, hits a butterfly, uh, and then it goes into your eye, and then it, it goes into your brain, which processes the information, and then you see it. Well, we don't know what that last step is like because we, we we don't know yet how to connect physical things to your subjective experience of it. So we can step back from that a little bit and say, okay, let's say we had a machine to do this. So the machine is uh, initially, uh, there's a photon that bounces off a butterfly, goes into a photo detector. The photo detector sends a signal into a counter, the counter you look at with your eye, the eye sees it, it's processed by neurons, goes into your brain and so on. So if you trace that entire route, every step along the way is a physical step. We can describe it in great gory detail as to what is happening every step along the way, except for the last step, 
like like the neurons are firing well how do i get an internal experience that is that is telling me that that happened so von neumann suggested that what we're dealing with is a chain of measurements there are physical measurements up until the last step something breaks the chain and now we become aware of it or so i gain knowledge from this system so he said well maybe this is related then to the notion of how do you get from a quantum potential mathematical description of reality, which is, after all, that's what quantum mechanics does. How do you get from that into the actual everyday reality that we experience? Where What breaks the chain from this quantum potential to the classical actual? And he said, well, maybe it's the same thing as when you're looking at a butterfly. I mean, he, this is my story, not his, but I'm in my interpretation. Maybe there's something peculiar about consciousness, since it doesn't appear to be physical, as best as we can tell, that breaks the chain. If that is true, and of course he, he scoped this out in his 1955, I think, book in great detail, and which is usually the reference that people point back to because he discusses this whole issue about the quantum measurement problem. If all of that is true, then uh, could you use your consciousness to so-called collapse the wave function? And so this this uh, consciousness collapsing interpretation is one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics. It's that there's something about consciousness that causes this potential world, the world of potentials or possibilities, to convert themselves into actualities. And that's that's one of a dozen or so different interpretations of quantum mechanics. But it's also interesting because it gives rise to a way of experimentally testing whether that notion is right. So the experiments that I've been doing uh, have actually followed on earlier experiments that started in 1998. And, but uh, two different labs ran an experiment to see if you could uh, take a double slit system and rather than using your eye to look and see if you could see which path information, to simply use your mind or your mind's eye to imagine that you could see what was going on. And so the connection, the reason why there was any reason to believe that maybe that were possible is because of many, many previous experiments showing that there's something like clairvoyance, that the mind can see or perceive things at a distance directly. And I mean, we can talk about that if you want, but there's a ton of evidence that, that something like that is possible. That being the case, I could use my mind to gain which path information by not looking at the double sit with my eye, but simply knowing directly what is going on in that vicinity. So the degree to which I can gain that information, the interference pattern should turn into a particulate pattern. It would turn into it to a very small degree because clairvoyance is not that good and it's difficult to focus and so on. But nevertheless, it should change in some way. That's the prediction of this experiment. So that's what you do. You set up the double set system. Uh, in our cases, we provided real-time feedback about how much interference there was in the pattern. And you can do that in lots of different ways. One, one way that we did was, um, a relatively easy way, is you have a, a camera snapshot, and you're taking like 10 snapshots per second, but you take that pattern and you do a Fourier transform of it, and you can decompose the interference pattern into its, its primary um, spectrum. So there's two elements in the spectrum. One is kind of a slow wave, which is a diffraction pattern, which happens when you send light through any slit. 
And the second is a fast-moving pattern, which is the alternating dark and light bands. So it's that second uh, spectral peak, which is interesting, because that tells you how much double slittiness there is in the interference pattern. So you can provide, you, you, you do this in, in the computer, and it's very fast. So you can get this value in real time, and then you provide it back to the person in the experiment as a feedback signal. So they can tell how how much they're in, interacting with the system. And you provide the signal in such a way that maybe it produces a tone or it modulates the volume of a sound. And you tell a person then to make this sound as loud as you can or as soft as you can or however you devise it. And then you have a protocol where for 30 seconds or so, somebody is mentally focusing their mind on the double slit with intention to either gain which path information if they know what that means. Otherwise, just make this sound get louder, which would be doing the same thing. So they don't really need to know anything about the physics or anything underneath it. It's just do this. And then there's 30 seconds where they withdraw their mind from the system and they get no feedback and they just relax. And then they go back to focusing again. They go back and forth uh, over the course of maybe 20 minutes. And then the session is finished. And then you get somebody else to do it. And you do it again and again and again. So at at the final analysis, you want to know, did the interference pattern change while people were mentally focusing on the system as compared when they weren't? So it's actually quite a simple form of analysis in principle. There are complexities involved because depending on the nature of the laser that you're using, in many of my studies, we used a helium-neon gas laser, uh, the the uh, the signal coming out, the laser illumination itself is actually hopping around. It's called mode hopping, and it has to do with the way that the laser is being produced within the gas. The gas is hot; it's moving around inside the tube. It causes this hopping behavior. So you have to use fancy statistics in order to get rid of the hopping. We did not have to do this when we transitioned over into. Uh, diode lasers, which don't have this property, and also in experiments using a single photon at a time in which there's no hopping behavior. So we've tried many different ways of looking at these optical systems to to both test and get rid of artifacts that made it more difficult to analyze the data. And we get pretty much the same results in all of them. So the, the, the basic story here, that if everybody can hold this in mind, you have a laser beam that is creating a pattern, a certain kind of pattern. And this, ordinarily, you would have experimenters who wanted to, to test the quantum phenomena would observe that pattern. They would use their the, the camera to record it. They would make the observations uh, in whatever manner, fit the experiment. But here, we're, we take the laser setup, and it is sealed away from a person they cannot see it. They don't get to take those measurements physically, but they are invited to imagine using the power of imagination that, that then they'll check using imagination, using this non-local consciousness, whatever it is, the thing that we don't understand. And when they do that, you were able to reliably detect changes in that pattern that would correspond to the direction of change you would expect if a person were actually taking a measurement. I would say yes with, with one slight change, and that's the word reliably. Ah, uh-huh, so yes, have, okay, yes. <laughs> so we have to use statistics because yeah. the effect, uh, the magnitude of the effect that we're looking at is really tiny. That's right. 
And so you can only detect it statistically. Yes. So for those of us who are comfortable with statistics, it's not a problem. We don't care how big, how big something is. We only care that it's big enough and systematic enough for us to see a statistical difference. That's the difference and, between significance and effect size. And very often that's the case with these phenomena, right? That we may find yes. something that is statistically really, really significant, but an effect size that is maybe marginal. Tiny. Yeah, and can yeah. and could be bigger depending on things like motivation and training. And so one of the things, one of the other things that I really love about your research is that you have consistently in different papers and editorial letters uh, made a connection between the wisdom traditions and the mind training that they provide and what they say happens when you engage in that mind training. So uh, you've mentioned Patanjali, and of course the Buddhist traditions have this idea of the cities, which are um, uh, perfections or potencies of mind that are expected someone uh, you know most many of the wisdom traditions expect that if someone is a sage they have certain capacities like uh, precognition mind reading the ability to see things in a perceptual channel that is not the normal physical ones that we're used to and so you found that meditators are better at this yes so we choose meditators oftentimes if we can get them uh, for two reasons. One is that many of the experiments that we do, whether they involve some sort of mental action at a distance or perception, it involves being able to do the task, which is usually a manipulation of one's attention. So if you, if you have ADD, you can't do that. And so you would not be able to do these tasks very well. Whereas a meditator or, or somebody else who has some form of attention training I mean, like you could take somebody who whose primary job is doing some sort of video game. Well, they can play a video game at, at very high levels of attention for hours at a time. Th that sort of attention would probably work. We, we use meditators mainly because many of our experiments are done in, in Northern California, and it's easier to find a meditator than a non-meditator. Isn't it also the condition of motivation? I mean, the part of the issue is that some things can hold yes. our attention, but they're holding it through hormonal and motivational. You know, we're getting a dose of dopamine while we're playing the game. We're kind of plugged into an addiction cycle, yes. right? But uh, a trained, an actually trained mind can do this on command. Yes, and you're right, because this is an abstract task. If you're in some experiments, you get feedback, but it's usually very, very simple, like a tone or a, a droning tone, something like that. And intentionally so, because we don't want that to distract your attention. Whereas you're right, if you play a video game, you're getting pushed to do it. You're being pulled into it so that you're you kind of forced to pay attention. Uh, the, these tasks are quite different. They're, they're usually very quiet, uh, very abstract. Even if you're, even if you don't know what's going on, and you're told make this sound go up, we're not talking about biofeedback. And even with biofeedback, people take a while to learn what to do internally in order to be able to make the signal. Most people in these experiments are doing it for the first time, and so they don't have time to figure out how to do something. So, meditators, we guessed and found that they can simply do the task better. And as you also said, that especially for longer term meditators, they're, they're kind of going into that kind of space, which requires a certain form of attention training, where it's not simply focused attention, but it's quieting the mind at the same time. 
So we want to get your analytical side of your mind out of the picture because you can pay attention. I mean, like most people, after a while, you drive a car, you're paying attention. So you're not driving off the road, but your mind could be thinking about a thousand other things at the same time. And we don't want that in this experiment because it requires something like one pointed attention. Even for people who are long-term meditators, they don't generally meditate with one point attention for 30 seconds in a row. What I find in in myself and in other people who have done long-term meditation is that we become really, really good to detect internal mind wandering. That we can see it, we can see it either happening or it is happening, and we go back and do what we're supposed to do. Whereas for somebody who doesn't have, doesn't recognize when the mind wandering is happening, their minds are flipping all over the place. And you can either you can see this. We've done this, and we've seen other people do tests where you give somebody uh, an attention task, and you can see that their mind is pretty good focus for about five seconds, and then it goes away. It including <coughs> with meditators. So the the difference of the meditator is that they can bring it back. <coughs> Uh, they, they they can give high amplitude alpha pretty quickly. And if it starts to go away, you almost can detect just by looking at the EEG record that they, they recognize, oh, I was thinking about cheeseburgers, and then they come back. Whereas a non-meditator will think about a cheeseburger and spend the next two and a half hours thinking about cheeseburgers and forget that they have a task at all. So th- that's why we use the meditator. Yeah. Well, and this is a, a thing that... Um... I've talked about many times that our culture is unfamiliar with all the capacities of the mind, in part because this culture, unlike other cultures, if you have to be willing uh, as a culture to invest resources, however you want to think of that, both physical, you know, material and non-material resources to the degree that makes sense, you have to be willing to invest resources in what the mind is capable of, what states uh, it is of uh, able to experience and manifest. And here we have very, very limited uh, sense of what will allow. Uh, you, you can have uh, cigarettes and coffee, you can have alcohol, you can sleep, and you can sit at your desk and do what we tell you. And beyond that, the, the range of conscious experience is pretty limited, and you could only imagine what a, a large-scale culture cultivating the skill of stabilizing the mind. But I remember being at a conference, Richie Davidson, who's a well-known researcher, it, previously in emotions, because he wanted to ultimately do the work he's doing now in uh, meditation, he was talking about one of the uh, experiments they were doing with compassion meditation. And that it was an EEG experiment, and he said, you know, f- when we were running this experiment, and the, even afterwards, we, we did a lot of hand-wringing because... We, we sort of got worried that the machine was broken because no one had ever seen an EEG machine do what these Buddhist monks were making it do. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, we kept, we were running the experiment multiple times, getting the same results, but we really thought, are we going to look embarrassed? Like if we publish this and people say, yeah, your machine was whacked out. So just that is like a really good example of we just don't know what, what, what the mind's capable of in our culture very well. Yeah, our, our culture has been extremely efficient at providing ways of being distracted. So most people can sit down and watch TV for eight hours a day uh, and they get absorbed into it. I mean, there's nothing wrong about getting absorbed and into a show, but it's indicative of how often we're actually not paying attention to what's going on inside our head. Uh, Fortunately, the 
the, the times have changed somewhat so that meditation is no longer considered a weird thing or exotic thing for people to do because it does have all kinds of interesting health consequences, mental and physical. Uh, it's not easy for most people to do it because there are so many distractions, many of which you're sort of forced to do to make your living. Uh, and it's difficult, as you said, like to imagine a thousand years ago where there wasn't any of the forms of distraction that we have today. So that it it's really it is difficult to imagine what would that be like. About the closest that I've, I've experienced is going on a trip somewhere where there is no internet and there's no television, there's no, no anything. And then it, even though I've, I've been meditating for many, many years, it's still very difficult to get down into that level of quiet. Yeah. Well, you know, if you talk to advanced... Your mind is still running like crazy. Oh, yeah. If you talk to uh, people who have... If you talk to teachers who run meditation retreats, you, you'll hear commonly, they'll say that even if a person's got a daily practice, it could be an hour a day. If we come and we have a, f a formal retreat, it's going to take two or three days for that mind to settle down into the register that yep. we that we feel is more serviceable. Similarly, with the three-day effect, you may have, have heard that research, being in the wild. If you're in wild nature, mm -hmm. it was Strayer and, and associates who did the – they found a 50% increase in, in uh, on creativity measures uh, compared to controls who were spent three days just relaxing. But the ones who were out in wild nature, that three days, there's a shift. And he, he was noticing it in his own work. That's where his research was coming from. He was hiking in the back country all the time. I wanted to ask one quick question and then m move on to the uh, the compassion research that uh, that you did. I, I noticed there, there were these refinements through the six experiments and you, it was, it's wonderful to see, uh, first of all, that this wrestling with, okay, can we figure out any other explanation? I, I know that the bar is always higher for this kind of research, and you, your work is really um, rigorous in that sense that you're always looking for, okay, how could we explain this in any other way possible? But you, one of the things that you did was the refinements where people were asking for more time to focus. Then you, you changed from like a low, lowering the tone to, raising something going up like with the and in particular in the case you used a sanskrit syllable um was it a mantra or a syllable talking about an om sound is that what you used i mean it just says a san, I, you say, I think i if i can remember the, the article it's that you said a, san, a sanskrit syllable or a sanskrit it's probably om yeah and so um and then in some of the experiments, you really seem to spend time trying to help people understand the thing that they were going to be manipulating. And so a couple of times mm -hmm. you said, well, you know, they don't, doesn't matter what, we, what, they can just focus on this and try to make it grow. It, is your feeling that, that somehow the right combination of those variables for, say, the right person, like if a person is really practicing in the Indo-Tibetan tradition and you, you use an ohm and you use a rising sound versus and they, they truly understand and they truly want to help you and see the effect, I mean, is, is that relevant? Does it seem to be or do you think? Oh, no, it, it's definitely relevant because there's nothing quite like motivation to help focus the mind. Yeah. If somebody comes in that they don't they don't really even care about doing it they they they'll do the task as best they can, but if they're not motivated about it they're you're you're simply not going to get a very good result so it is a challenge as I say in all of my papers, this is not a physics experiment, and this is not a psychology experiment. this is somewhere right between the two, and so you need very high attention and sensitivity to the physics part of it because there are all kinds of i mean interferometers in particular are exquisitely sensitive to everything 
like like a milli-degree difference in temperature will change the pattern. So you have to be careful about this stuff. But in the same t- time, you also have to be careful to make sure that the psychological set and setting are right and that the motivation is right and the person that does not need to rush away after they do the experiment, all those kinds of things. Mm. And we've measured in experiments not only EEG, but something simple like mood. If you do ask somebody to repeatedly do the experiment again and again, we did one where they had to do 10 sessions, mood very significantly declines from one session to the next. And it's a combination of boredom and negativity and things going on in their life and whatever. But overall, with with all of the subjects, that becomes a very important component because if they're not feeling very good about doing the experiment, maybe the last five sessions are worthless. Yeah. And this goes back back to J.P. Ryan and Jung, right? We're talking about this issue, right, because of J.P. Ryan's uh, uh, own experimental subject saying, you know, this is just boring. I don't want to do this. And the the, the difference that synchronicity is as a phenomenon that we're invested in our own life and a shocking uh, happening that seems to shatter those barriers of of mind and, and identity and time and space. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's related to our ability to engage, which is a nice segue to the compassion research because that's part of what you were doing with that research, is that we had seen a history of things that uh, sometimes referred to as in- intercessory prayer, but uh, you, you, it's what is DHI again? Distant healing intention. Distant. That's the that's the better term instead of intercessory prayer. But you were pointing out that if I were uh, if if I were praying for someone or sending a, a some kind of positive intention, a healing intention for them, but if I didn't know them, uh, I might not be as motivated. And right. so you, in your experiment on compassionate in, intention, actually used couples who were pair bonded in some way. They knew each other. It, it might be that they were married. It might be that it was a, a mother and child in two cases. Well, one mother, one father, was it? Or, but um, you. Uh, but these people were invested in each other, and one of them, in some of the cases, had cancer. So there's a real motivation to try to help them. Can you describe okay. a little bit of that? Just I open it up to you and take it from there. I, I will, but I, before I get there, I want to describe. Uh, we tried many, many different ways of providing motivation in a double slit type of experiment hmm. because of the abstract nature of it. And because it kind of, from the outside, it looks like a physics thing. And so, you know, unless you're a physicist, you wouldn't really get into it. So in one experiment, we we took a little Buddha doll, a little rubber doll uh, that was that was hollow inside, but it was like a Bo- sitting Buddha doll. And we put an LED inside the Buddha and so the LED would get brighter if you were doing better. How cool. And the That's experiment cool. was done in complete darkness. So the only thing, the only way you could get light to is to illuminate the Buddha. And how would you do that? <laughs> you do that by being successful in the task. Enlightenment. And that turned out to be one of the better forms of feedback that wow. we provided because for a couple of reasons. One is people don't generally like to be in complete darkness. They would rather have light. So here was a way of not only getting light, but having the little Buddha, which is already kind of saffron colored, that the, the light would turn on. You get this glowing yellowish saffron Buddha thing showing up. Wow. So that, that was an example. And at the same time, you'd also get a, a droning tone, which was kind of along the lines. It didn't exactly sound like Om. It sounded like a thousand people simultaneously doing a, an Om in harmony. Wow. 
And so you wanted to bring that up and have the the Buddha illuminate at the same time. And there's something compelling about that, uh, especially because he got rid of the darkness. Mm. So that's just one example of lots of different ways that we've tried. And Okay, and parenthetically, could we hashtag ecological crisis there, right? I mean, we, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the uh, multiple meanings of the word illum- to illuminate and yeah. so on. So the, yeah, that, that yeah. worked pretty well. Yeah. So the other experiments you're talking about are part of a long series of studies, which in the uh, are kind of uh, motivated initially not so much by distant healing, but by the feeling of being stared at. So lo- a lot of the experiments we do, not so much the double slit, but lots of the other kinds of experiments are based on commonly reported experiences that suggest that some aspect of our mind or consciousness transcends space and time. That's the, the whole domain of psychic experience. That's what it's about. So we pay attention to, to the kinds of things that people report in their everyday life. One of those is the feeling of being stared at. And so the way you would, you then there's in, in the real world, there's many, many possible explanations for the experiences that people have. Uh, you, you, anybody tells you something that sounds like clairvoyance or precognition or telepathy or whatever it happens to be, they say, well, was that, was that psychic? And the response is, I have no idea because it could have been, and I give a list of a dozen different things, all of which could be true. And most of them are completely mundane, like coincidence, like peripheral vision, subliminal perception, all kinds of things. So you have to go into the laboratory under controlled conditions to get rid of all of those other explanations and so for the feeling of being stared at, you take two people, you isolate them. One will stare, the other one will be the stare E. And the stare E, you don't ask them to do anything psychic. You simply say, we're going to record your heart rate for the next 30 minutes. So just sit in the comfy chair, don't do anything, maybe keep the other person in mind. But that's it. That's all you need to do. And you have, of course, no no way of knowing when the other person is staring because we use a one-way camera or one-way video link. For the person who is staring, uh, in some of the designs we have because of a one-way video link, uh, you're, you're, you as the starer are looking at a computer screen, and every so often your partner at a distance, their face pops up live, and that's your signal as the starer to stare intently at that person. And then the face goes away into bl- a black screen again, and you're, you withdraw your attention. So it's kind of like the double-sit experiment, except now it's intending towards a person versus pulling your attention away. So if the feeling of being stared at is a real thing, then you would expect that some aspect of the physiology of the person being stared at would change. And that is what you see in these experiments. So there have been many, many sessions like this done. So we took that idea as kind of an analog, a laboratory analog of distant healing. So it, it could be prayer, it could be any any number of a dozen different ways of doing distant healing to see whether or not it makes a difference. So we've, we've noticed that even just bringing in people who had just met each other, they, they still get, you still see the effect. So it doesn't require that people are long-term bonded pairs or anything like that. But we also figure that motivation helps this process. So we used a bunch of people who didn't have any anything particular going on, who may or may not have known each other beforehand. And that's, that's kind of our, not exactly a control because we see the effect even in them. But as a comparison against 
people, uh, couples who are long-term bonded pairs, either family members or married or partners, one of whom was being treated for cancer, and the other one was trained in the Tibetan technique called Tonglen. So Tonglen meditation is cultivating in, uh, uh, intention and especially healing and then offering it to the other person. So they went through a Tonglen training program to teach them how to do that. Then they went into the lab and did this feeling of being stared at experiment. And sure enough, we got a larger and faster response in, in the person being stared at than we do with the so-called controls, which is quite interesting because in almost every case, the person who was being treated for cancer was on drugs that would suppress their nervous system. I mean, not only chemotherapy, but other kinds of drugs that keep them calm and so on. So you, you would expect a priori that you'd get a subdued response, but that's not what we saw. We saw a larger response. So, yeah, so motivation makes a difference, uh, even in these cases. So I have an, an anecdote about this kind of experiment. So among the, the uh, control subjects, uh, these were um, these were students who had just gotten their doctorates, but they hadn't done their residency yet. And so they were on campus, and we told them about this experiment and come in with a partner, most of whom just met each other. So in two cases, a man and a woman came in. In both cases, the man was the starer and the woman was the staree. We asked people, who do you think is more receptive? Usually women say that. Not always. In this case, uh, they they did they did the experiment and then afterwards we do a debriefing to, to ask them well what did, what did that feel like and they, these most of the time people say well I, I didn't feel very much or I felt my heart beat faster or something like that something not very important in this case they were both both couples the receiving side in particular uh, were quite reticent to say what was going on so later it turns out that. The woman, who was the stare-e in both cases, felt these overwhelming waves of love coming at them, like unexpected, something big happening, and the man too. So now they these people had chosen each other, but it were strangers up to like a day before, but they were attracted to each other. They both felt something happening like that. A quite a strong physiological response, which was reflected in the results of the experiment. Both of those couples ended up getting married because they were, they were so shocked by, by this feeling of non-local connection that, that was there that they felt, well, they had to get married. So we, we thought, well, this would be a way of having a, like a dating service. You know, you do this experiment. If you have no result in the experiment, then just don't even bother if you have these big responses, you, you have to get married. And then so uh, one of the couples, this was actually a third couple, uh, later asked me to marry them, asked me to marry them. Well, I'm not qualified to do that, and I didn't want to have to go through the process of getting the qualification. But I was, I was kind of honored to be asked to do that. Uh, and it, again, kind of confirmed that if there's some interesting connection going on, it is not just local it is some kind of non-local connection wow that is such an excellent story i really really love that and <clears throat> i i wanted to to clarify that in in this experiment um everybody you you found an effect in all three groups but there were basically three groups you had 
the control group who really, who really they might have been interested but not necessarily uh, motivated. Then you have motivated group, and then you have motivated trained group. And That's right. by clearly, by far, when you look at the graph, you see that the training plus motivation makes quite the difference. That that is the the best effect that you get, and right. that even. And so that's, for me, that's just a beautiful thing because I emphasize this and, and I was talking about this in a, a series also in relationship to working with the medicines of our world, and it, it, a psychedelic or otherwise, that a trained mind is going to have a different experience and usually a better experience overall. I mean, it, that's the idea of the wisdom traditions is that, okay, if we put you in a familiar situation, you're going to handle it skillfully and freshly probably. If we put you in an unfamiliar situation, you're going to do better than most. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the promise of the wisdom traditions, okay? And, and we see that meditators, some kind of training makes a difference. But then there's this other really beautiful thing, which definitely, I don't think that was in the paper, but that, that this idea that we really do sometimes, we could experience love at first sight. And it's not just this, it's, it, I mean, there's sight involved in this experiment, but it's even deeper. There is this weird resonance of soul, so to speak, that is going on that is, okay to look for and it's okay and also to be careful you're not deluding yourself right because limerence could feel like that um but that is such a great story yeah yeah and so yeah in this you know we were dealing with uh, people who were about to become full-fledged doctors yeah they had their degree but you know they hadn't done it so they're all very intelligent asked all kinds of interesting questions knew a lot about the underlying physiology more than i did in most cases uh, so they were able to appreciate it, I think, in a way that uh, subjects in the experiment who didn't know anything about physiology or medicine or anything, right. they would have appreciated it as much as they could. But now we're dealing with people who actually know bodily systems quite well. And, and they were, they were well, it, it took them, it took me a while to figure out what was going on. And they finally admitted what was happening. Yeah. So after that happened the first time, I had a kind of a suspicion like any time I would debrief a couple and they were kind of, they didn't want to say what was going on. I would eventually find out. Yeah. They, they definitely felt something wow. and it was big. And to be clear in case anybody is, if you're not, cause I don't know if we really made sharply clear what's happening is that there is a, um, a kind of galvanic skin response. I think people might, there might be people who have a sense of what that means, but there is a way of just measuring objectively whether or not a person is, is, is essentially being stimulated by something. And so they don't know that they're being stared at. And the experimenters don't know because that the window of, 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 of sending the intention or, you know, or whatever we're being stared at is, is, randomly selected. But when that window opens that says, now please send that compassionate intention, you see a, 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 a kind of an arousal uh, response in, in terms of the skin conductivity. Yeah, you, it, you see a sympathetic arousal. Sympathetic so it's, arousal. A, it's part of the sympathetic nervous system that becomes activated. In, in the case of skin conductance, it might be sympathetic. It's usually the autonomic nervous system, right? It's part of your nervous system that you're not paying any attention to. So both of those can become stimulated because the similar experiments have been done on the autonomic nervous system directly, things like heart rate, you know, you're not paying attention to what's going on. Uh, and sometimes things like EEG, part of the central nervous system, so definitely sympathetic. And you see it everywhere, like anything that you measure in the body that can show some kind of change, 
typically will show it in the direction of being activated. On the other hand, if you work with couples who do dyad meditation and they begin to associate this feeling with being relaxed, you can get the opposite effect. So they don't get the, the feeling of being stared at not as a uh, as an agitation, which is how most people would, but as a re- relaxation because mm-hmm. they would associate that with getting very relaxed. Mm-hmm. So it's more like at some unconscious level, you recognize it's something something's different and your body responds appropriately. Yeah, which also speaks to the importance of of having both partners. You know, like if you wanted to try this at home, which is a safe experiment to practice compassion for someone you love, um, as both of you are trained, it could be that that's part of what happens. Because it does take, we either have to have a high-level trait compassion or we have to have training to arrive in the state actually to be able to skillfully receive compassion. So it improves our ability. And people who are low in trait compassion can actually have a very difficult time receiving it. Someone can be trying to offer them compassion and and it's not really registering for them. So training on both sides might also produce different effects. Yeah, I, I suspect that it would. I don't know that, that we we haven't done experiments uh, to measure beforehand the degree to which somebody was open to receiving the compassion. But it, I mean, that's the beauty of doing an experiment. You can say, okay, we'll figure out some measure to see the degree to which somebody's open to this stuff and how they can feel it, and then make a prediction based on it exactly along the lines of what you just said. And I, I expect that that would probably work. Yeah, there's work out there on on this very issue. Um uh, so it's yeah it's exciting because we're we're learning more. I mean we've had the word compassion for a long time, but we're learning. I mean this space of uh, of Tonglen and other compassion practices being able to have these kinds of effects, I think, are kind of um, maybe intuitively we wished it or believed it, but to see the objective evidence, it it really suggests the need for a paradigm shift. I mean that's that's part of. So as we close here, I mean it seems to me that's part of what's at issue is that. The experiments that we're talking about don't conveniently fit into the paradigms that we have. And this is what William James said. He says, you know, look to the anomalous if you want to advance your science. Uh, Do you have any just final reflections about what that means to you? I mean, I know what it means to me as a philosopher in some way, but what do you think that might mean to you? Where do you think, what what could happen in science if people really said, okay, look, we we, got to take this seriously because the empirical data is just there? Yeah, what it says to me is that every fledgling scientist in every domain should be required to have at least one course on the philosophy of science, because most of the time you don't have that. And so you never encounter the the possibility even that science is resting on a set of assumptions. Some And as with any kind of set of assumptions, some of them are right and some of them are probably wrong. And so the ones that are wrong will create blinders against being able to see the anomalies. And they're only considered anomalous because they don't fit the current paradigm. So I like I think like a lot of scientists said all the way through my doctorate, I, I don't I didn't take no, I, I take back. I took one course in philosophy as an undergraduate, which basically convinced me I never want to learn anything about this again, because it was focusing on things like analytical philosophy, which makes my brain hurt anyway. Mine too. Uh, but well, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's you you need a certain way of thinking in order to get really excited about something like analytical philosophy. But anyway, 
if somebody had told me back then that simply that science rests on a bunch of assumptions, well, let's let's look at them and see if any of them are right, and maybe some of them are not so right. So not only philosophy of science, sociology of science, to immediately tell us that there's aspirations about the way that science is supposed to work, but it doesn't actually work that way because scientists are human too, and we have social constructs that the that determine what is going to be seen as mainstream and what is not. And you need to recognize that. I had to learn that the hard way. And then third is the history of science, not only in your own discipline, but the history all along the way. And that's because at every stage of history, people thought they were modern and sophisticated. And and that's never the case. We are not modern and sophisticated now from a scientific perspective because everything changes all the time. So one of the ways that I keep encountering this to my shock and horror is that I'll find uh, some more conservative colleague who who will respond to the experiments that we've been discussing and a whole bunch of others and say, that is impossible. That cannot be true. In which case, you're either creating flaws or it's fraud. That's the only thing that's left. It's fraudulent or it's flawed. Because it's impossible. Well, why is it impossible? Well, because it would violate the laws of science. Really? Uh, Well, why do we keep changing our textbooks every two years? Science is not a matter of dogmatism. It's an evolving knowledge structure. And it's strongly influenced by who holds the reins of the status quo. And so if you happen to be doing something that counters the status quo, you'll get a huge pushback. Because as you probably well know, in the academic world, you identify with your ideas. And so if somebody comes along and says, you know, some of your ideas probably aren't right. That's not simply taken as a matter of debate. That feels like a personal attack. And so if you're personally attacked, you fight back. And what the, the, the upshot of it is that you don't get grants, you can't publish, you can't, you know, you can't be in the system if you challenge it too hard. And so a really good case then is this recent Nobel Prize on entanglement. So when Clauser was doing these studies back 50 years ago, he was told, don't tell anybody that you're doing this and you probably shouldn't do it in the first place because it's not physics. Like This is something you shouldn't be doing. But he did it anyway because he was he found it interesting and you know he lived long enough to see that it actually was something worthwhile. And this you see again and again in the history of science. So... The, the challenge is you can have a strong conviction that something is really true and you'll pursue it because your your curiosity will pull you. You might be right. You might not be right. So you need to constantly check yourself all the time to make sure you're not diving into a delusional rabbit hole. So it's useful to take the criticism, but then to reevaluate it based on the results that you're getting. So in my case, most of my career now has been studying one or another kind of psychic phenomenon. This is not mainstream science, but I don't care because I've seen enough results in my own data and looking at past hundred years to say nothing of people's experience and what people report in other cultures. I'm convinced that these effects are real. They will become part of mainstream science at some point because truth will eventually out. And so one of the ways I think about this, when somebody says, this is impossible, I say, really? Tell me about what you know about the structure of reality as defined by physics today. Like, is it possible for things to be connected at a distance? 
what about the uh, the direction of time? Is that is that a fixed thing? Is that even a thing? All of these kinds of questions. You will occasionally find a physicist who insists that this is impossible, and and the and the reasons given for that are are actually silly. They're like silly reasons. Like we haven't found a particle that can do that yet. Yeah, a way really? to stop thought rather than to continue thought. Right. Well, <clears throat> yeah. So, so that my my advice then to the people who feel that they're onto something, especially in the scientific or a scholarly. Uh, world is to do as Joseph Campbell said, which is follow your bliss. And if you're really lucky, two things will happen. You'll live long enough to see that people finally accept it. Uh, and second, you'll learn that your initial conviction was actually correct. And then and you follow it. The The downside is that maybe you weren't correct and you have to be humble enough to accept that. Uh, and humility is not so easy to sustain when you're, when you have a conviction. But nevertheless, it's part of the challenge. That's why that's why at least I like to do what I do. And I'm glad you do it. Dean Redden, thanks for joining us on Dangerous Wisdom, my friend. My pleasure. And I want to thank all of you, but just before I do, a couple of things that uh, Dean and I didn't get to talk about. I had to let Dean go. He had another engagement. But um, I wanted to mention a couple of other things about his work. So... Just as he was leaving, he mentioned to me, and I, I had two cities in mind because I, there was somebody else from the Institute of Noetic Sciences that I was going to invite to come on Dangerous Wisdom. And in the process of of looking them up, I I saw n- that they were in Novato, but then I re- had remembered Petaluma from previously thinking, I mean, they had been there for a long time. And Dean uh, mentioned to me that they recently moved to Novato. So if you are looking for IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and that was started by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell and maybe other people. I don't know a whole lot about the whole history of IONS, but they, they have really been committed to looking at this area, this unclassified residuum, the part that we did a, a contemplation on William James and I just mentioned that to Dean, but this idea that this is where you want to look. If you want to advance science, it's not going to be doing the standard stuff that everybody else is doing. You have to trust that in 100 years or 500 years, what we're doing today is going to look a little primitive. Maybe in some ways, maybe small, maybe large. Another thing that uh, Dean mentioned to me was that his book, his recent book, which is called Real Magic, one of the things that he essentially tries to show is very resonant with what uh, we looked at in the contemplation on magic. So the, the, just prior to this interview, I released the series on magic from uh, the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty podcast archives. So it's now on the Dangerous Wisdom platform, and you can listen there. And it's interesting that I didn't know this because I didn't get to read Dean's book, and I did that series before even looking at his book. Um, which I started but just haven't finished. And he said, well, you know, if you look at it, what what, what my book Real Magic does, um, and I'm just paraphrasing here, not quoting Dean, he's, he's gone now, but uh, he was saying that essentially I, I'm looking at what we used to think of as esoteric magic, you know, stuff that is not real, and I'm showing that we have now good science, empirical evidence 
that supports the kinds of things that we would normally associate with magic. And that is very much what the series on magic does. I don't know if we draw from the same research, but I, I do know that there are some unique things. So I know that Dean's book is not organized around Yeats's, the poet William Butler Yeats, and his three principles of magic. And I know that he's not explicitly trying to make a connection between magical consciousness and ecological consciousness. He thought that the that that was interesting and not wasn't wasn't what he was doing, and also between those and spiritual consciousness, and also the, those and aesthetic consciousness, which is why when I work with artists, I often encourage them strongly to listen to that series on magic because there's a way in which art is like magic, and that connection is strengthened in the discussion that we had here today, where people were imagining using their imagination to check a quantum device, and so. The linkage then is this resonance or or non-difference between magical consciousness, ecological consciousness, spiritual consciousness, and aesthetic or artistic consciousness. And that these are all supported by a body of research we already have available to us and which we could vastly expand, especially if we had more people with better trained minds. I mean, if the average mind was more like the, the advanced meditators that Dean has worked with and the even, let's say, some of the Olympic-level meditators, you know, that there's a kind of correspondence um, you know, between the sort of hours of effort that an Olympic athlete has to put in to get where they are and where the most elite meditators, the kinds of effort that they put in. But it, it's not like it would be that hard for us to accumulate those hours. And so all of us could be much, much more skilled at the use of our own mind. We have to be able to find out what its capacities are. And we simply don't know. We think we do, and, I, and we, Dean and I touched on that, this, this idea that it can take a while. You, we may even think that, first of all, we're going around with a mind that we are using to do everything, and with a little bit of training, we find out that that mind is not very skilled. And we touched on that a little bit as Dean was talking about some of what happens for the kind of average meditator who just practices every day is you, you start to realize that what you're doing is discovering how distracted you are. So it's almost to say that a well-put-togetherness, a clarity and stability, those are indigenous to the mind, indigenous to the soul. And what meditation reveals, it's a process of recognizing just how distracted we are. And that's why sometimes when people will say, well, I can't meditate, I, I'm too distracted. Or every time I sit down to meditate, I just get so distracted. And the fact is that when we sit down to meditate, we notice that we're really distracted. And if we were just going about our day, we wouldn't register that as richly as we do if we sit down quietly. And so these are all important things to consider, and we can elaborate at some other time. I did just want to mention one last experiment that Dean and I didn't have time. I didn't think we would have time. Sort of was optimistic that by some chance it could come in, but I, I just thought it's a lot to talk about quantum physics and compassion training. But he also did a beautiful experiment, a couple of beautiful experiments on meditators and their ability to sense into the future. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because sometimes when I work with people, I talk about this idea of the four times, or the three, the four times without three. 
which I always think is a funny formulation, but it makes a lot of sense. And the idea is that there is past, present, and future. We're used to those three. Past, present, and future. A lot of the more superficial self-help catastrophe discussion around meditation and about mindfulness and so on is about being in the now. The wisdom traditions make a distinction, though, because what they suggest is that no past, present, and future all belong to each other. They are all part of a construct. And dominant culture philosophy later came to this when Edmund Husserl, who did pioneered something called phenomenology, that is studying the phenomena of it, studying experience itself and trying to understand its structure. And he did an analysis of our experience of time. And what he showed is that the present is totally interwoven with the past and the future. And the classic way to understand that is to think of how you hear a melody. So if we're listening to Beethoven's symphony, his fifth symphony, and we have bum 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 bum, you can't hear that as a musical idea or any melody at all. Imagine any melody you can think of, twinkle, twinkle, little star. You can't hear that as a melody if you're only in the present moment. If the present is all that's there, then all you've got is a series of notes. And that means that we have to be open towards something that's about to come. The future is there. That's why the, the variations on the melody and why surprise and, and syncopation and, and, the, and innovation that happen in a melodic line, those register for us as significant because of our capacity to be future-oriented. We also somehow hold in mind what we have just heard. So, in a different way of thinking about this, the, the if we were to try to confine ourselves in the now, that would be the behavior of of either a totally incoherent person or an addict. Because when we're addicted to something we are willing to sacrifice our future and our past. So the, the relationships that we've, the, we've built up, the career that we've built up, the money that we've saved, all that's the past, right? And we will sacrifice that to get our fix. And we know we are going to feel terrible tomorrow, or we know we might get caught, or we know we're doing something awful. We know all sorts of risks and downsides, but we're willing to, to sell out on that future self of ours in order to get what we want now. So being stuck in the now is is a, an addictive pattern and it helps us to deconstruct the idea of, well, what 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 is the power of now then? And when, when people are gesturing toward being in the present, in the here and the now, a little more philosophical sophistication could help us to understand why the wisdom traditions introduce the notion of the four times minus three. So the fourth time is a, is a kind of sense of moment that includes past, present, and future, but is not trapped by them. It's free of them, but registers them. Now, that could sound like a complicated philosophical idea, but, but Dean did an experiment that kind of works with this. The idea is if a meditator enters a, a state in which they start to let go of their bondage to past, present, and future then they might have access to something that's about to happen. And the paper, if you want to look it up, it's called Electrocortical Activity Prior to Unpredictable Stimuli in Meditators and Non-Meditators. And so the idea is they were measuring 
electrocortical activity, that is EEG stuff, the electrical signals in the brain, and then a random stimulus was going to appear to, to the uh, participants. And they would either be um, an auditory or a, uh, a, a, a visual, a light stimulus, so either light or sound stimulus. So they didn't know when it was going to come, but just prior to those random stimuli, the EEG activity would change. And the, the, of course, as usual, Dean is very careful to go to make everything rigorous and find out is there any other reason why their activity would reliably change before an unpredicted, just before an unpredicted stimulus is, is about to come to them. And he doesn't find an alternative explanation. It's a really beautiful and uh, not so hard to understand a paper and experiment. And it's worth looking into. There's just this idea that if we really could focus the mind, if we could learn how to train our minds and become a little bit freed of past, present, and future, we could touch this fourth time that in turn allows us access to a kind of past that we ordinarily wouldn't. So that's why in, the say, the Buddhist tradition and some other traditions, when you access that, that clarity of mind, you can experience your past lives. And in a similar manner, there's a precognition that comes. I'm even thinking for some reason now of the, of the even though I didn't like the, the, the new Star Wars, which are technically episodes one through three compared to the classic Star Wars, but uh, in in the in both of them, you do get this depiction really um, when Obi Wan is training Luke Skywalker, and then also when the young Anakin Skywalker is brought before the Council of Jedi Elders, they're testing his capacity to see the future. The young Skywalker, you might remember that. And this stuff is coming from Lucas was influenced by these wisdom traditions, just as as Dean is is to some degree inspired by the descriptions of potencies of mind, perfections of mind, capacities of mind that these traditions tell us are possible, but which we are are not aware of because we didn't train. You, you can't do what you haven't practiced. Even compassion is a skill. And we can be empathetic or sympathetic. We could, for some reason, have some natural trait compassion, but the skill of compassion that was used in the experiments that Dean and I discussed, that requires practice, training, learning. And that's okay. Sometimes in our culture, it surprises me the degree to which people just don't want to get an education. They think they can figure it out all out on their own. And we can figure out lots on our own, but why throw away this incredible storehouse of wisdom, love, and beauty that the wisdom traditions offer us? We can learn the techniques. If you are curious about Tonglen and compassion practice, you can find free resources on the Dangerous Wisdom website. You go to the resources page. If you go to dangerouswisdom.org, click on resources and scroll down. Or you can click on meditations. That's where it's at. And scroll down there. So if you scroll down in the meditation section, you'll find some introductory uh, material on compassion and Tonglen and a lot of things that you just might not have ever known before, and concrete practices that if we work with them in a, in a holistic way, this is not a toolbox box approach, you know, this is not, here's another tool for your toolkit, 
but can we begin to work with our lives in a holistic way and find out what capacities might emerge? And it might startle us. We might discover real magic if we can train our mind to work with it more skillfully. And that's one of the most powerful things I think that we can imagine for us now as we face such global challenges, that part of what might terrify us in these challenges is that they might demand that we do work on ourselves that so far we're not really used to. Now, I don't want to imply that people don't try in their lives or that they don't practice or the anything like that. This is a cultural thing, that we don't live in a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. And so therefore we just might not even know what we're missing from our experience, from our practice. And part of the difficulty we face is that we can try really, really hard and not get very great results. That the trying itself, in some cases, is can be a misapplication of effort. And sometimes the harder we try, the worse things get. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But something that comes up with clients I work with quite often, they might feel, I'm really trying, I'm trying so hard. And then as we analyze it, we find that the trying is not helpful, and that there are ways in which we need effort, and we need passion. And then there are ways in which part of what we need to do is relax and realize we're putting in too much effort and or putting effort in the wrong direction. It could be even slightly off. You can imagine if two people were walking for a thousand years and they were just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a degree different in their orientation as far as the direction they were walking. One of them might arrive at the destination and the other one might miss it by thousands of miles, depending on how fast they walked and how long we let them walk. And that's sort of one way to look at our culture. The other thing that's really so remarkable about this dialogue with Dean is that they, just to be really clear and put a fine point on it, we are talking about experimental evidence for things that just don't fit the paradigm that we have. And it's delightful to see, in part because it reinforces, I, I would like to invite you to receive it as a kind of uh, an encouragement for your practice of life. Because when I teach people compassion practice and Tonglen and other practices from the wisdom traditions, and when we talk about things in the wisdom traditions, we might think, well, you know, d does any of this really work? And Dogen has this beautiful essay on the circle of the way and how we practice. And he says, sometimes the results of our practice are evident. And sometimes they're not. They remain invisible to us. Nevertheless, in an interwoven world, our practice cannot help but have some effect. If we practice well, the effects will be positive. And if we practice unskillfully, even though we don't see the delicate interwovenness, the threads of music running through the whole thing, that we, we don't see them and we may trample them, we may break them, and not realize that we are the cause of that. And similarly, we may begin to heal them and restore them, and we may not at first see that we're the cause, but just to know that somebody in another place who has no idea that we're practicing love, compassion, sending them a positive 
and maybe even a healing intention, or just wishing them to be well and sending them peace, that that has an effect. That experiment shows something that should be astonishing. In one sense, if we were truly locked within the dominant culture, we would say, there's no way that someone knows that you're sending them an intention. If you're in a sealed room and, and they're in a sealed room, they cannot know. It's got to be some sort of fluke or some sort of statistical accident. And it's just another, it's the same thing with the quantum experiment. There's no way you can affect a device that's sealed by just imagining. And yet, there it is. There's the evidence. And what a vitalizing thing for our, our own practice of life. That when we get up and we think, okay, I'm going to meditate. And this is partly why when Dean was talking about intention and motivation, in a holistic practice of these things, we raise up that motivation. We think to ourselves, I really want to practice to help everybody I know and love and to help even people I don't know and love, beings I don't know and love, that my practice today will help the trees and the grasses and the horses and the bees. And I may not see it, and I can't satisfy myself just with sitting in a room, of course. I want to go out and also engage. But just to know that that is a proper foundation. And that when we establish a proper foundation rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, and rooted in a real training of the heart and mind and body and world, that that will affect everything. We'll play the piano a little bit better, but we'll also interact with friends, loved ones, strangers in a better way, and they'll register it. And this is something that we can learn very easily from horses because horses can sense when that energy shift happens in us, and they can sense when we have compassionate intent for them. And one day I'll share a story that really was, it struck me even though I have confidence in these teachings, but when, every time we see it verified, whether through someone else's empirical work, like Dean's wonderful work, or uh, any, some other empirical work, it's, it's an encouragement and it helps to build confidence. And then as we get deeper, we start to sense more and more, oh yes, I really did know what that person was thinking at that moment, or I, I really did know what they were about to say. And it wasn't just because it fit the flow of conversation. It's because I was really relaxed and open. Or I was really able to sense what this person needed. And in a compassionate, not a self-centered way, because our ego can get really built up with some of this, we can start to think. And that's why the traditions don't teach us to chase these psychic powers. They say essentially, well, yeah, you can. You know, you can just cultivate the powers but then you won't have the mind that knows how to really work with them in a way that helps the world. And I also think it's just so so rich. If anybody wants to think about how, how do we set up an ethical uh, matchmaking service where we verify whether people's connection is good by having them practice Tonglen. And what a beautiful idea that it's practicing this healing, this compassionate intention towards someone. It's not lust. I, I, as I mentioned to Dean, it's still you could have cases where limerence could be there or some other energy, some projection is involved. And so you'd have to sort that through. But what a remarkable thing that you might encounter someone, feel some sort of connection, and, and through this genuinely compassionate intent might find out that there is just a lot of potential for, for love between the two of you. 
And and maybe it wouldn't even have to be romantic. It might be other things as well. And so maybe what, what you should do is if you go on a first date with someone, you send truly compassionate intent. And then if they call you the next day, <laughs> you know that maybe maybe they experience something positive too. And if again, we're doing this with some ethical orientation. It's a genuinely compassionate in, in, intent that we send them, really deeply wishing them to be well. And that's uh, such a good foundation for a relationship too, to both to know how to do that for each other, as friends, as parents and children together, as uh, loved ones together in, in any way. This is just really inspiring science, and it might be the kind of, it steps in the direction of uh, what I still like to call, in, in honor of Nietzsche, uh, a, a, joy, a truly joyful science, Gaia Scientia, a truly joyful, holistic science. Okay. So that is a lot, and I am so thankful for you. If you have listened this far and taken some of this in, please, if you have stories about these sorts of mysterious phenomena that are not they are not supernatural, but they are about the superness of nature, anything related to what Dean and I discussed or what we considered uh, together after Dean left, please send in your questions, stories, suggestions, through dangerouswisdom.org and we might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.